Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. We were talking about Exodus. And we were in Exodus 12. And we went through a number of different things that uh, a lot of people just don't understand about Exodus. That they were in the bondage of Egypt since Genesis. And that bondage got worse and worse and worse. And it got to the point where they did not they thought you were overpopulating Egypt with these people that were somehow different in their culture. The the Israelites, the descendants of you know, Isaac and Jacob, were obviously had different ideas about things. They were a different kind of people. And this is probably coming down from Abraham and all this stuff. So they had some sort of approach to religion that we don't really have a clear picture of because it the, the the Old Testament had not been written. The Pentateuch had not been written yet. They had learned a great many things from Joseph. And if Averis is the spot where the Israelites were living in Goshen, we know that they had revered these elder brothers who were the father of this nation of people that was now accumulating in Avaris and all around in Goshen and probably in more distant parts of Egypt because they were very skilled, they were very intelligent. If we talked about the Hebrew language actually being compiled by Joseph, it appears that the earliest forms, the proto, people were talking the other day about the fact they still use the Masoretic text. We mentioned that this morning. Of course, I do because that's what was used with the King James Bible, and I'm using the King James Bible. I'm not a King James Bible only, but I use it to be consistent in what I'm writing about. The important thing is not the King James Bible, the Masoretic text, the Paleo-Hebrew, Proto-Hebrew or any of that stuff. The important thing is that you stop eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and start eating of the tree of life. The important thing is that you stop creating doctrines and pretending that they're the doctrines of Christ and Moses when the doctrines of Christ and Moses were the same doctrines and then you have to find out what those doctrines are. Unfortunately, a lot of people have this habit it's a pharisaical habit. I don't want to pick on Pharisees, but as we generally, we could say it's a Sadducee habit too, where you create a dogma, doctrine, philosophy, teaching in your mind, and you worship that doctrine, etc. And what you really want to worship is the actual creator of divine reason. I've just invented a new phrase. Right reason, divine reason, the will of God, 
these are convertible phrases. In my mind, they are. In a lot of other people's minds, they are. And the reason why is what they are is representations of the unmoved mover. That the, the God is something that pre-existed what we see as the laws of nature and nature's God. That something, some sort of divine intelligent, we call it divine, some sort of cosmic intelligent, we can use the word cosmic universal intelligence, is is uniform throughout the universe, as far as we can see. There's a huge uniformity in the universe. And some people call it the singularity, all this stuff. You can call it Yahweh, you can call it Allah, you can call it all these things. What you call it doesn't change it. Your opinion doesn't change it. It is the unmoved mover. It is the source of creation that we see patterned out throughout creation. So, Moses evidently had a glimpse of this, at least from from my perspective, reading this text, reading uh, thousands and thousands of pages of uh, of ancient texts and phrases and verses and sources and meditating upon the moment and trying to listen to the Holy Spirit guiding me, I've come to certain conclusions. My conclusions are not your salvation. My conclusions are my opinions. But I believe that you getting, you personally getting access to the Holy Spirit is what you need to understand your place in that divine creation. That, that law of nature and nature's God. It is up to you to make that divine connection, that divine spark, that yod that I've talked about before, that yod, which is, there's two yods in the Eleph of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. And that's God connecting with man and man connecting with God. Each of you need that. That's the divine spark. That's the source of revelation. That's the source of resonance between you and that divine creator. And if you make that connection, you will see things that other people will not be able to see. But in order to make that connection, you can't make it on your own. God has to agree. But in order for you to become copacetic to that connection, you have to be willing to see the light. You have to be willing to go to the light. You have to be willing to walk into the light. You have to be able to and willing to see the truth. To see the truth about the world, you know, people say, oh, well, corruption in the government, corruption in in uh, the media, corruption and all this. And look at what they're doing. Look at what they're saying. They're fact checkers and everything. That's fine to notice those things. But you need to see your own corruption. You need to see your own failings. You need to see your own weaknesses. And though they are many, <laughs> you, you can be absolved of those, forgiven of those, uh, relieved of the burden of those misconceptions, misapprehensions, uh, those, those, those confusions in your mind and in your body. You can be relieved of. And when you are relieved of them, they can literally cure cancer. They can cure all kinds of things. Because you have removed a conflict that has dwelt in you, in your mind and in your heart. Because you're no longer objecting to the light. You will let the light flow into you and you will only do that 
if you're willing to see the truth. Go back to Adam and Eve. They fled the light. They fled the garden. They fled the tree of life. Because they did not love the light yet. And you need to love the light. Peter denied Christ. And Christ knew that, well, I'm going to pray for him. And hope that he will eventually accept the light. Which meant that he had to accept the fact that he cannot do this on his own. It's not his strength. It's the strength of the divine will of God working in you. And, you know, a lot of people who are so against God, so against the idea of religion, they, they don't like it. They, they, their stomachs just churn, right? Divine will of God, what is that? You know, that doesn't mean anything. Well, it may, it may not mean anything to you. But what I'm saying is what it means is what is right. Whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is correct, whatever is the source of creation, that power that comes from this other spiritual dimension, that's that's what you have to see. In order to see that, you have to see yourself. Physician, heal thyself. Except you can't heal yourself. But you can be healed by submitting to the light, to the truth, and be willing to see this. Moses understands that better than most. and But now he has to convince thousands and thousands of the descendants of Israel... And some Egyptians and probably some other nationalities that are all in Egypt, have been in Egypt also for hundreds of years because they were all brought there when there was the famine. And so now they they have the opportunity to be freed from that bondage that had existed since Genesis, since those people went into the bondage of Egypt. They can be freed from that. But they have to listen to Moses and listen to what he says. And Moses cannot take credit for what he is saying. He has to say, it is God that is showing me what to do. And God can show you what to do if you're willing to see the truth. There was a lot of baggage from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they were going to have to set that baggage down and pick up their responsibilities as parents, as brothers, as fathers, as mothers, as sons, as daughters, as members of a community. So what Moses was going to do is create an intentional community to help maintain the freedom that these people were going to be, was going to be thrust on these people. Plutarch once said, the greatest destroyers destroyers of liberty are the granters of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And now, you weren't going to be able to go to your benefactors in in Egypt. Already, he said, well, you still got to do your tally of bricks, but I'm not going to go get any straw for you. You're still going to have to pay your taxes, but I'm not going to give you any subsidies. I'm not going to give you any welfare. I'm not going to give you any grain. I'm not going to help you out. So they had to start learning how to help one another. And in that process, they also helped Egyptians because they were scattered out amongst the Egyptians to find straw and to find what they needed. There were probably many Israelites already out there amongst the Egyptians. We know that some of them were engineers. We know that they 
were operating a turquoise mine for part of every year back in the days of Joseph. We know that uh, they were extremely well educated. They knew metallurgy. They knew uh, medicines. They knew how to extract oils. They knew how to do all kinds of skills. Because they had those skills almost immediately when they were thrust out of Egypt. We also know that Moses was trained up in many of these skills. We know that Aaron was trained up in many of these skills. In metallurgy, etc. And and fashioning gold and all these things. They knew how to do that. And more. They knew a lot of things that the average historian or certainly the average Christian, the average Jew don't know that they knew how to do and they don't know how to do it today. (laughs) We're not going to go there. That's the secret, secret information. (laughs) What you have to get first is find out how Moses was going to help create those social bonds of an intentional community so that when these people were thrust out of Egypt, they would be able to be free. And as we said this morning, part of that was secreted away. It wasn't that secret, because he does explain it. If you knew Hebrew, that they were they weren't speaking necessarily at that time, but they eventually knew Hebrew. You see, and this is one of the things I was pointing out, the same word that you you see that it was translated into leaven. Well, 7603, which is, again, Shen Elif Resh, uh, is given the number 7603, and that's translated leaven. But 7604, which is still Shen Elif Resh, is translated leave 75 times, remain 46 times. That's interesting. One's leave, one's remain. And four times remnant. Uh, three times let, two times rest, and several other miscellaneous uh, translations. But it's exactly the same letters. Shen Elf Resh. Given a different strong number and has supposedly a different meaning. But it's spelled exactly the same in Hebrew. Now we have words that are, are spelled exactly the same in English, but they mean more than one thing. You know, it can, can mean this or it can mean that. We certainly have sounds, you know, like reed, like a, a shock uh, of tule reeds, or read a book. They sound the same, but we spell them slightly different. But there are some words that are spelled exactly the same, but they they mean something different. Well, I just gave you 7603, which is sure, and it means leaven. It's translated leaven five times, but there's also the same spelling that's translated leave or remain, two opposite things. But there's also 7605 that is uh, translated remnant or rest or residue. And then there's 7606, uh, again, elef, uh, shin elef resh. And it's translated rest and remainder. And then there's another word that's associated with these words. And it is Biet Shin Resh. It still has the Shin Resh in it. But uh, doesn't have the Elif 
in the middle, but it has the beard at the beginning. And this actually means flesh or body or these kinds of, the idea of flesh and body anyway. And kindred or blood. It's got a lot of different ways, but it appears as body twice, and but flesh is 256 times. And so where where do we find that word? We find it in a number of different places. But the reality is, is that the flesh pots that we hear, we're going to read about in Exodus 16, is that word, Basar Sierra, uh, which is part of the idea of the cities of blood, which we can read about in Ezekiel 11 and, and Micah. And like I said, I have links on our page at Preparing You. So, Moses isn't coming to teach them how to build a city of blood. As a matter of fact, we'll see in Proverbs, we're not supposed to do that. We'll see, like I say, in Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah and Micah, they all talk about not having this one purse, this system where we be in this cauldron. They're going to build a city and the city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. And this is this is a system of government. But you will not remain free in that system of government. But that system of government is full of leaven. It's full of cruelty. It's full of violence. Because if we go up to this other word that is translated leaven, which is chet mem because that, that appears as leaven, let's see, five times also. And, of course, then there'll be unleavened. There'll be a word for that. But it's also translated cruel. It's also translated grieved. Why would you translate that word that way? That's given the Strong's number 2556. Well, Strong's number 2557 is supposed to be a different word altogether. It's a verb also. And uh it's... uh the same letters, uh, Chet, Mem, Tzedek, but it it's translated bread, leaven bread. It's translated leaven, but the same letters also means cruel, it, but given a different strong number, so you don't realize that it's the actual same word. We have another word, 2558, given a Strong's number, Shometz. How do you spell it in Hebrew? Chet, Mem, Tzedek. Same word. Same letters. It's translated vinegar. Six times. Vinegar. Well, yeast makes vinegar. You, If you put certain yeasts in a high sugar contented liquid and also supply oxygen, it will begin to produce vinegar. If you withhold the oxygen so that there is no oxygen and you supply a little bit different kind of yeast, you can make wine. If oxygen gets into your winemaking, you will have sour wine, wine that is both wine and vinegar mixed. But that's that's yeast growing in there. So that's why that... But this is the same word that we can also see that is translated... These other ways, you know, like leaven and like shemak, which is uh, chetmim somak. It's the chetmim, 
but it's translated violence and cruelty. And as you've seen, and there's Shemek um, with a different Strong's number, what is it, uh, 2554. The other one was 2555. Spelled exactly the same, but it means uh, violence, violated, shake, violently taken away. This is the leaven of the Pharisees. And this is why we see in these stories where he's using words that actually mean violence to that that the same word can mean leaven. Same word that can mean cruel can mean leaven. So when you've got the yeast out of your house, have you got the cruelty out of your house? Pretty simple stuff. Pretty simple stuff. But people don't no no no. All we have to do is get the yeast out. We don't have to stop being cruel and grievous. What was the deal with the, the bondage of Egypt? They started putting grievous uh, burdens upon the people. Woe unto you lawyers who put grievous burdens upon the people. Go to Revelation. Grievous sores. We see that. You go our study on Revelation. They're talking about grievous sores. That That is put on the people because of the leaven in your society. Because of the cruelty in your society. Because of the violence in your society. You say, well, our society isn't that violent. We have a few criminals going around doing bad things. No, your government is violent. Stop paying your property tax. Say, I don't want to pay into the school. It's teaching, you know, uh, uh, racism and it's teaching uh, critical race theory and it's teaching, you know, sexualizing young kids and teaching all kinds of bad things. So I don't want to fund that anymore. Go ahead, stop. Within a few years, somebody with a gun is going to come to your house and take your house away and throw you out in the street. Because it's your system is not a free system. It's a violent system. The system Moses is taking the people to is a free system. The entire government is going to operate on free will offerings. Because they're taking the leaven out of their government. They're taking the violence and cruelty and grievous burdens out of their government. But their government will just fall apart if it does not alter what it's, what it's doing and how it's doing it. So it's very important that uh, we understand how to get the leaven out. And he's going to teach us how to get the leaven out of things so that we won't be subject to the plagues that we're going to see. And as we said in verse 24, and ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance. And we talked about ordinance and I'm expanding and we'll continue to expand our page that covers ordinance and uh Covers statute, which are the same word often, both in the Greek and in the, and the Hebrew. And understand what and why they're using certain words. And maybe we'll do that in the second half, but we'll also be taking calls in the second half. Uh, let's see if people are, yeah, lots of people calling in. Um, so by the second hour, if anybody has any questions or they just want to ask me questions about anything, we will open up the uh, switchboard for calls. 
But right now we're going to continue here with Exodus 12 and see if we can't get to the end of it. So this ordinance is not really an ordinance. It's a portion that you need to take into your heart and into your house. So and into your family, into your be it. That's what be it is, is your household. So that you have this ascetic, which means righteousness. Be it, which means household. Eleph, which means this this spark of man and God, this double yod of man and God connecting one with the other, and the vav, tav, yod, kaf, mem. Because <laughs> that word is in the text in verse 17, which we've already gone through. Let's see, what was that in verse 17? We go back there. Observe, again, back to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is actually the feast of without cruelty, without force, without forced contributions. It's it's actually a feast of charity. That's what Christ was teaching. Wow! That's what James was talking about. Pure religion was to take care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the constitutional order and system of government. Why? Because the constitutional order and system of government, if you're depending on men who exercise authority one over the other to provide you with your feast, with your welfare, that's going to be a snare. David told you that. Paul quotes David, which the table that should have been for your welfare becomes a snare. Why? Because it's full of yeast. It's full of cruelty. It's full of force. It's full of violence. You're just not used to thinking that way. But of course, that's what repentance is. Thinking a different way. Are you, are you capable of thinking a different way? Going a different way? Very important that we do that. So, the tenth plague, death of the firstborn. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And the Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt For there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night. Now he's, uh, now come see me. He said the next time I see you, you will die. But now he's sending for Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night. You know, come. And he said, rise up. Get ye forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the God, Yahweh, Yadavahe, as ye have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Okay, he's finally capitulated. He's got it done. He's been negotiating this, and every time he 
he reneges on a negotiation and it gets worse for him and worse for him. Now they're getting, they're going to be thrust out. Everybody's going to leave at once. Nobody can say, well, no, I'll catch up with you. They all got to go, whether they like it or not. If they put the blood on their door, they got to go. There's probably going to be some that didn't put their blood on the door, but they're saying, I'm going to go with them anyway. There's always this exception to the rule, and that plays in really important. Maybe we'll talk about that, that exception in the rule. That individual who was hook, line, and sinker going with the bad side and then suddenly, you know, gets struck off their high horse and they say, I'm going with the good side. And they they completely change saddles and they become a whistleblower for righteousness. And so that's a real thing. That's going to happen. That's going to happen in our time as well. So we have to walk in forgiveness. Nobody is out because they were on the bad side. But how do you filter out the spies and the wicked? I've got lots of stories about spies. Uh, I probably could say I have lots of stories about the wicked. <laughs> but, but I don't think of them as wicked. I think of them as souls that have the opportunity of repentance. And I hope they all do repent. But I knew when the spies were coming. You should know when the spies are coming. How do you know who should go with you? I can tell you if there's anger in your heart, if there's raka in your heart, if there's violence in your heart. And see, that's what they're always trying to do. They're trying to poke you to get you violent. Poke you to get you angry. Because if you're angry, you're usurping God. You're worried about them usurping you in your Declaration of Independence what about you usurping God and choosing to judge your neighbor instead of love your neighbor? I tell you, you cast out demons with the love of God. But then, as you all know, love is you is a utility. Love is a power. Love is an instrument of God flowing through you, the mem. But it will only flow through you if you have the tzedek, which is righteousness. You're not righteous. But if you sit and wait upon the Lord, if you set aside your will for God's will, and, and you, you'll have to find out what that is for you individually, I don't know, then the energy of God can flow you through you. And what it, was it in Hebrews 11.34 or is it 43? I can't remember. Yeah, you will be able to drive out the aliens. <laughs> so anyway, you may need that before we're done. Exodus, the Exodus, verse 33. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we be all dead men. After that, they saw all these people dropping dead all around them. And they said, we're all going to de- die. Maybe they should have wore masks. Maybe that would have saved them. You think it would have? I mean, some people think masks save them. I see people still wearing masks. I don't think it, masks will save you either. You cannot mask yourself enough to save you from the truth of God. So verse 34, And the people took their their dough... Before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses 
and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. That that phrase, spoil the Egyptians, Jack used to use that all the time. We're going to spoil the Egyptians. I told them once, <laughs> I've told this story before. Those of you who have listened regularly or go back, uh, I said, Jack, stop saying that. <laughs> this is long before January 6th. I could see, you say that, you're, you're throwing gasoline on their fire. <laughs> uh, God will spoil the Egyptians. And we will be his beneficiary if we seek to do his will. I'm not going to spoil the Egyptians. God will do it. Be very careful what you say. We could go into the Hebrew and find out what was actually said there and the syntax. But trust me, don't take credit for spoiling the Egyptians if that ever happens. Verse 37, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses, to Sukkoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children and a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds and even very much cattle. So that's that's a big crowd, 600,000 on foot that were men besides the children. Oh, we're talking a million people. That's hard to imagine. Now, you could have a lot of people in some of these areas. And it wasn't just those in Avaris that were leaving. It was Egyptians as well. And so, it could have been a lot of people. But that is a huge number of people. So, believe it or not, that's what it says. So the next section I have here is unleavened, verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry. Neither had they prepared for themselves any victuals. Well, what could they have prepared? If they had leavened bread, it would take up more room. You can carry more unleavened bread than you could carry leavened bread because it's not puffed up. Uh, of course, that, when we used to go camping, a lot of times we would take bread and we would turn it into unleavened bread. <laughs> we didn't have much sense, young kids. You'd take a loaf of Wonder Bread and you could smash it down <laughs> into a very tiny bit of space because it was mostly air and we could get it into our pack along with all the peanuts and raisins we can get. And of course the old story is that eventually all those little things that we put those things in busted open and it all collected at the bottom of our pack. And then by the end of camping, you could look in the bottom of your pack and you had all this pieces of bread and pieces of nuts and pieces of raisins. And that was gorp. That's what we call gorp. That was before granola. That was gorp. <laughs> and you could eat that. 
you would you, you might want to pick out some of the lint, but anyway, that was that's how we invented what we used to call gorb. But anyway, that so they could have made all these cakes ahead of time, uh, leavened or unleavened, because they've been preparing for this for days and days, and they could have been baking this bread and everything, but they didn't do that. They made it quick, and they made it to go. But that isn't why, and, and some people try to say in this paragraph that that's why you had to have unleavened bread. Well, why did you have to take all the yeast out of your house? Because they said you had to have all the yeast out of your house. If anybody even had the yeast in their house, the leaven in their house, that we were to cut them off. It's because they're talking about different things. And they may translate it violence in their house, raka in their house, grievousness in their house, oppression in their house, or they might have yeast in their house. Which is it that God really wants you to get rid of? Well, one of the reasons this is written so cryptic, I'll tell you this once here, I may mention it again another time, but if if Moses was not a little cryptic, all the Bibles would have been burned a long time ago. But because he's a little bit cryptic, false prophets can come in and say, oh, he just means yeast. Just get the yeast out of your house. Don't worry about the fact that you, you're you asking men who exercise authority to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare and to take care of you in times of need. Don't worry about that. Just get the yeast out of your house at Passover. Because that's what it says. It says yeast. Don't worry about the cruelty. Don't worry about your unforgiveness for your neighbor. You know why you forgive? Why did Jesus say you had to forgive? Well, he, he told you. Forgive so that you could be forgiven. Who in Egypt did not need forgiving? Why did Joseph rise to a position of power even above the Pharaoh? He had more authority, active Working authority in Egypt and even the Pharaoh. Now, th- t- technically, the Pharaoh was in charge, just like technically Biden's in charge of the United States government now. But he's not really running the show. Somebody else is running the show. It's very obvious. But this is the way it was. Not, not exactly. Don't want to take the analogy too far. But Joseph had all the power. Joseph was exercising the power. And the Pharaoh was happy to let him do that. That was because Joseph forgave his brothers. Very important that Joseph forgive his brothers. That's where his real power comes from. If you want to be a part of the power of God, if you want to plug into the utility of God's love, you have to forgive. That means you have to not judge your neighbor anymore, not judge the wicked, leave that judgment to God, not take vengeance, not spoil the Egyptians with your own will. Leave that to God. So, very important to understand that. So, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even... The self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, we can go back to earlier than the Masoretic text and take a look at that. 
We know that other places where they talk about these years that uh, in earlier uh, texts of the Hebrew it says they were in bondage in Egypt. They were in Egypt and Canaan for the, that period of time. So anyway, it's it's not that important. We don't want to strain at these things, these contradictions. If you get what Moses was pointing to, if you tap into the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit become your guide, if you keep straining at all these other, you know, Proto-Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, Masoretic texts, what does it say in the Greek? Oh, we got to get the East out of the house. All these outside forms, you're going to miss the Spirit. It, the, the form becomes idolatry. Because you're unmooring the meaning of Moses from what it is. And I know I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating because nobody else is hardly telling you. I mean, there's there's kingdom tracks in a lot of people. But if you don't keep up with Moses when you're leaving, <laughs> you're going to get left behind. I'm sure people were left behind. We know that some groups broke off from Moses and went a different direction. We don't ever know what happened to them. You want to be following the Holy Spirit, not your own imagination. Verse 42. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. Egypt actually means bondage in in the Hebrew. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. So, that night... Interesting, they're talking about that night. Uh, Self-same day, but they're talking about that night. At night, there's darkness in the daylight. So, the truth is, a lot of people do not understand the adventure that they are starting out on. They're still in the dark, to some degree, about what is coming up. But they go. They take the step. Almost everybody who starts to repent and starts to see some sort of favor in their heart for the story of Christ. And that's a lot of Christians out there that are not doing what Christ said. They're entrapped in the system because what should have been for their welfare was a snare and a trap. They've gone back into the bondage of Egypt. But something has attracted them to the story of Jesus Christ. They don't really see all the light yet, but they are drawn to the warmth of his love. And even though I'm going to be shattering some of their delusions as we talk about these things, Christ is there. The Holy Spirit is right there. I'm not, I, I do not want to leave anybody without that opportunity of reaching out to that Holy Spirit. But you have to let go of the wreckage of false religion, of false doctrines, in order to put both hands to the plow of Moses, the plow of Christ, and began to work according to his ordinances, according to his portion, according to his his benefits, because the portion is the benefit. Uh, God's benefits are not entitlements. You're not entitled to them. They're always a gift. Grace is a gift. 
So anyway, verse 43, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. So what word did they have there for ordinance? What, what word is it in the Hebrew? Maybe I'll put links in later so that you can see. There shall no stranger eat thereof. No stranger eat thereof. I mentioned Hebrews earlier, Hebrews 11, whatever verse that is, where it talks about the aliens fleeing before you. That word that they translate aliens could be translated stranger. What word do they have here? Well, you can look that up on your own, but they are not to partake of this Passover. Strangers. So what makes you not a stranger? That you become a part of the congregation of Israel. Congregation of those whom are sitting down according to the leading of the Spirit of God and the directions of God, the commands of Christ. They're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands with the intention of creating a community based on faith, hope, and charity. That's the intentional community. With the intention of creating those social bonds. They don't know exactly what that's going to look like because that's still out there away. That's a little bit in the dark. They don't, they can't necessarily make it happen any more than they can walk on water. But they're willing to step out of their comfort zone and start reaching out so that they're not strangers. So that, you know, there's so many people that say, oh, I've been listening to Brother Gregory for 10 years, 7 years, 6 years, 5 years. So I say, well, what congregation are you a part of? How how do you fit into the network? Well, I, I don't want to join anything. I just like listening to you. Well, you ain't listening to me then. <laughs> because I'm saying what Christ said. I'm saying what Bo- Moses said, that you had to become this assembly of congregations. We talked about these two words, assembly and congregation. The Hebrew word for assembly is often translated congregation. A lot of people want to translate ecclesia as congregation. It's not. We've got a lot written on that. There's other words for congregation. And our congregations are not corporations. The ecclesia is a corporation. It's not a corporation of the state. It's a corporation of God. Just like the Levites were, they didn't belong to themselves. They were, they were brought together in a network. But they belong to God. That, that doesn't mean that they could rule over anybody. They weren't imposing taxes on people. He's not till Herod. There were times, other times where they tried to do that. I mean, Saul tried to do it, but Samuel said that was foolish and his kingdom wouldn't stand because he was trying to force an offering. You know, if you, if people are forcing your offering to take care of the needy, to supply the army, to do whatever, you're not in a free government. And if you want to follow that government, that's up to you. But if you do, now you may be locked into it already, but if you're seeking more and more of the benefits of such a government that operates by force, by exercising authority, you're not following Christ because he said we weren't to be that way. Now, most people are that way, but that now that I'm shedding light on that fact, you can repent and turn around and go the other way. Verse 46, uh, did I get 
Oh, verse 45, let's say that. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth out of the flesh abroad, out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. So you don't kill the animal by breaking a bone. Although Christ's bones were broken, but he was already dead when they broke the bone. So this breaking the bone isn't about not eating the marrow, although some people interpret it that way, of the sheep, because the marrow is some of the most nutritious part. And once you roast it, you can break those bones, and they break a certain way. But not breaking the bone means not breaking the bone of the sacrifice. You don't kill it by hitting it in the head. You kill it by the letting of blood, which is explained more in other places. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel, there's that word congregation of Israel that includes the Tav, because I said it was also, that word was going to be in verse 47 as well as what we saw up earlier. Shall keep it. Shall keep what? This Passover. The principle of the Passover. Taking the leaven out of their house. Taking the violence out of their house. Taking the force out of their house. Taking the oppression out of their house. And taking the benefits of force and oppression out of their house. Not depending upon the men who exercise authority one over the other to provide their daily welfare. And when a stranger shall so sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord. Now he's saying stranger. Should we look and see if there's a difference in this stranger than the other word they translated stranger? Keep the Passover of the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Whoa, boy, that's going to cut down on membership. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Well, of course, we have lots of stories of Israelites circumcising people and circumcising themselves. And I have a page now on circumcised. As a matter of fact, there's a link on that page. You can go. And I've added a great deal to that. You know, just like the word leaven. What, how do you spell circumcised in Hebrew? What does it mean? We know that Jesus talks about the circumcision of the heart. You had to be circumcised of your heart. Does that mean you have to cut a piece of flesh off of your heart? No. No. It clearly means something else as we read it in the Greek and, the, and out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Circumcised of the heart. But Moses said the circumcised of your flesh. That was what was important to Moses, right? Then why does he talk about circumcision of the heart? (laughs) Yeah, he does. I'm sorry. Moses wrote about circumcision of the heart being more important than circumcision. You circumcise the flesh, you know, you take a 20-year-old guy, 30-year-old guy, and you circumcise his flesh, well, he's gonna, he's gonna remember it. He's gonna be sore, and that is a sacrifice. If he's gonna be a part of your system, you say, well, you gotta do this. He's gotta really be sincere. It cut down on a lot of the insincerity of people. But if he just gets circumcised of the flesh, he's not circumcised. Because he has to be circumcised of the heart. 
but we don't have time to go into all that right now. We'll save that for another day. We have at least uh, another verse here, or two, or three, uh, to go over, and it's under the heading of one law. So all the congregation, we just saw that. No uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Now, if you want to reduce the religion of Moses and the religion of God down to rituals and ceremonies and outward signs, you can certainly do that. But all that idea of of doing that is still you're playing around the tree of knowledge. You're you're not applying the full meaning of the words. You're not getting down to the depth of your heart and your soul. And you're not going to be immune to the plagues of the world. Because you have to be in uniformity with Moses and the right reason of Moses, which was the right reason of God, which is the divine will of God, which means you have to be circumcised of the heart. You have to remove cruelty and judgment from your heart. Well, you can't even do that on your own. But it can be done to you by the carving of God, you know, carving in your heart and in your mind the character of God where God remakes you in his image. Because that's what you have to do, is be remade in God's image. I'll, I'll talk about this in a lot of different ways, but this is a major theme. I'm, I'm walking around it, giving you little hints with these words. So, then he has this area where he talks about one law, and it's verse 49. One law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that is sojourneth amongst you. Thus did all the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. By their armies. And again, there's that word armies. I should put a footnote in there so you can see it again because we've talked about that. Because those armies, they, they aren't, they don't have armed soldiers really yet. They might be getting a few guys that are getting armed soldiers. Probably some of those metal urgy smiths or whatever that were Israelites in Egypt were sword makers. Weapon makers. They probably knew how to do that, all that stuff. And uh, once they knew that they were going to be getting out, they were making those weapons. But they were not a well-organized militia yet. And that's what they were going to need. That's how Israel defended itself with a well-regulated militia. But it was regulated the way it was meant to be regulated from the beginning. They weren't just regulating the militia. They regulated their altars of charity. They regulated their their tables of welfare because they were no longer going to eat of the tables of welfare that were a snare and a trap. They were going to have to set new tables. The same as when the Christians were cast out of the synagogues and the synagogue network of the Pharisees, they were cast out, put out. They couldn't go there anymore for welfare, for the Corbin. They could not tap into the treasury of the temple, which was the Corbin of the temple. There's 
there's were two treasuries, the Gastaphone and the Corbin. And the Corbin was your social security fund. And there were riots at the time of Jesus Christ because they said they were pilfering the social security fund by creating this aqueduct in Jerusalem. And they were protesting that. You, you Keep your hands off our social security fund, our Corbin, that's in the treasury. That's for taking care of our parents when, and ourselves when, in our old age. Of course, it was way better run back then than it's run now. And there was actually a legitimate reason why you might take that uh, funds for the aqueduct out of there because everybody was going to get water. But it wasn't legally correct and Pontius Pilate should not have approved it. But he did. And then he tried to cover it up, a little weakness on his part. But eventually he converted and became a pretty good guy. But because of he was so impressed with Christ and the ways of Christ. He was a thinking man. Most people don't get him, don't understand him. But then they haven't studied him as much as some of us have. <laughs> so anyway, the reality is is that he's that self-same day they're coming out, organized. And he's telling them right away from the get-go, one law shall be for everybody. For for the stranger in your midst, for the sojourner, for the Israelite, you don't have two different laws. You don't have, you know, where you get... And, and a lot of Jews today, they need to examine that idea. Because they think it's okay. And, and I know where they get it from... It has to do with translations again in in the Old Testament, Testament in the Masoretic text. They think that they can they can put burdens on other people that they won't put on their own people. Very dangerous area. You're supposed to be having the sacrifice of the red heifer, which is benefits going completely outside of your your network of. Israelites. It's helping strangers not even amongst you. That's what the red heifer is about. It's about foreign aid. And we were told to do that. We're supposed to love our enemy. We're supposed to love our neighbors within the intentional community Moses is creating. But we're also supposed to be loving our neighbors that are outside of that community. And as we go through this farther and farther, we're going to see that great many people in Canaan and the places they were going, Hittites and everybody else, they said, I like what they're doing. I like their system. Just like the Hessians say, I, I want a piece of America. This makes sense to me. A lot of Hessians went back to Austria, to Germany. But some said, you know, there's something about this idea of an intentional community based on faith, hope, and charity. What you don't realize that if you can actually start doing that, sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, actually start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, actually start following the ways of Christ with your righteousness, tzedek, and faith, tov, in a day-to-day ministration, mem, as fish in Christ's water, nun, <laughs> then... Then you will be plugged in without you even knowing it. You will be plugged in to the power of God, to the power of his love. And, yeah, the aliens, the enemies, 
They will flee before you because God will go before you. Not because you're frightening, but because they hate the light. They they will flee the light. And if you have the light go out ahead of you, you are unstoppable. And we got all the way through there. We'll, we'll be right back. Okay, so we're in the second hour, and I said I would take calls in the second hour. If anybody wants to raise their hand and ask a question, they can do that. They don't have to. I also opened up the chat room so that if anybody who's listening online, there may be a click there somewhere where you can get into the chat room. If you get into the chat room, you can ask questions, and I will address them, or make comments, and I will address them, or share your ideas, and I will address them as I see them pop up on my screen. I have another page that I started this week, Death of Despair. Deaths, plural, of despair. And uh, I put a, a number of statistics. That that word, the term, death of despair, comes uh, from a Princeton economist, and Case, and uh, Angus Deaton, who set out to understand what accounted for the falling U.S. life expectancy. So this life expectancy numbers are determined by, you know, how how old people get, you know, divided by the number of people. And so life expectancy can drop while people are still living to be 100 years old. But a lot of people start dying earlier and that life expectancy drops. Now, this this is not a recent study. Well, it's it's not a old, old study, but it's not a super recent. And we know that there seems to be a real rise in the death rate in the last year or two for a variety of reasons, but we won't go into that. It, it appears that it's going to continue. And I have some other quotes from uh, people like Paul Ehrlich, uh, who wrote The Population Bomb. And he sees this... this uh, Reproduction rate in America dropping drastically. We've been below, we've slumped steadily below a, a rate that could sustain the population. We've been below that since 2008. Uh, and, but this death of despair is, has to do with overdoses, suicides, alcohol, uh, liver disease, etc. And a lot of people are dying. Now, there's other reasons uh, why people are uh, dying. And uh, and the age group of those people that are dying uh, varies greatly. You know, in, in some age groups, it's 56% increase. In other groups, it's a 387% increase, which is huge. Uh, 70,000, uh, over the past two decades, the average 70,000 per year in these different deaths, uh, that are being caused by these other elements. There's other forms of the death, in my opinion, that should be included in that, which changes statistics drastically. Now, drug overdoses that's supposedly self-administered 
And it's suicide in a sense because you knew there was a possibility of drug overdose. So a lot of people aren't necessarily trying to kill themselves. They're doing everything but doing that. Uh, sometimes suicide is a cry for help. They don't really want to die. Almost everybody who jumps off a bridge changes their mind before they hit the bottom. <laughs> but uh, it's too late. Nobody drinks to kill themselves of liver disease, but the fact is they know that's a possibility. And even though they have that realization or that understanding, they continue to drink. They continue to kill themselves. And in my opinion, that's the spirit of destruction. People who have the spirit of destroying others will soon want to destroy themselves. People who hate the light will want to destroy themselves. That's the the way it works. And and uh, but you know, I point out there are other ways in which we are destroying ourselves on a regular basis. But in the interview, and I have a link there to the interview of Paul Ehrlich with uh, Uncommon Knowledge people at Stanford, I think, uh, where he says the native-born American Anglo man, there's a big overlap with the deaths of despair problem. I can identify it. I can't explain it to you why it's happening, but its results its consequences are alarming. So, he sees a demise in the population, not only with the lower birth rate, which we've had since 2008. We've had a low birth rate for longer than that. But it has really gotten below replacement since 2008, which is, you know, 14 years that's going on. And then now with COVID and some of the other things, that the plagues that are now coming upon us, that some people are seeing and other people are trying to cover up, uh, the, these rates may just skyrocket. And they're worried about global warming destroying us. Well, something's destroying us, and it ain't global warming. But anyway, under the that page, Deaths of Despair, I have a section that talks about the disease. Normally, there are three different types of suicide, what they call egotistic altruistic and anomic uh, suicides. And uh, Mil Durkheim, which is a psychologist from quite a ways back, uh, listed a fourth, which he calls fatalistic suicide. Not a lot of fatalistic suicides these days, but, you know, guys jumping on grenades, you know, to save other people. Maybe that's more in the altruistic. Um, the fatalistic suicides are... Suicide is often involving excessive social regulation that restricts individualism. Feeling controlled by the values and norms of society, the person becomes hopeless and despairs or of ever escaping these oppressive external forces. Often when people are kept in prisons and under uh, force controls and stuff, you know, uh, they actually fight to survive. They they endure unbelievable things. They, they will, like, not give up. They just won't die. I knew a guy who helped build the bridge over the River Kwai. You may remember that movie that's dating some people. You probably find it somewhere on Netflix or something. 
it's uh with Obi-Wan, uh the 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 star who played Obi-Wan in the, the original Star Wars was in that movie. And uh a number of other guys I can't remember their names right offhand. But I actually know somebody who was building that railroad. Uh, he was captured. He was Indonesian. He became a Christian. He was kicked out of his family because his family were all Muslims. And so he had to leave town. He joined the Merchant Marines. And uh, the first time out of the harbor, they were torpedoed by a Japanese uh, submarine. And he was picked up by the Japanese and taken off to Indonesia to build the railroad there. He should have died a hundred times over. and uh, But he didn't. And uh, one story in particular uh, that that I know of where he was, he had dysentery, a common thing that usually killed you, you get diarrhea. Uh, you can't, you can't, you know, you just waste away. You can't get up. You just have this horrible, horrible diarrhea. Nothing fixes it uh, unless you have medication normally. That's the only thing that will fix it. And uh, people die of it. By the millions. And he got dysentery and he was in their hospital, which is just, you know, it was just a hut with, you know, bamboo leaves over the top. And uh, guys lined up on little mats and uh, and they died. And they would take the body out and dump them somewhere in the woods or in a you know, shallow grave. And then they'd bring in another guy that had dysentery and he would die. Well, this one guy... We'll call him Ben. Uh, he didn't die. And one day, the Japanese officer in charge of the whole camp came in with soldiers and they're yelling in Japanese. And he was going through and looking at all the patients and everything. And he came to this, this guy and he belt some questions or something to the doctor and the the doctor, of course, is just another prisoner who has no medicine or maybe very little experience, and he's supposed to be taking care of everybody, and there's not much he could do. And he says, uh, that, well, Ben won't die. He's been in the hospital longer than anybody. Everybody, everybody is rotated over, but he's still alive. He just won't die. And the Japanese officer gave commands to his soldiers. Blah, 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 you know, and, they, and these guys come running up and and put a stretcher down next to him. They put him on a stretcher and they pick up the stretcher and they run out of the hospital and they run off into the jungle. Well, he can't do anything about it. Nobody can do anything about it. And they figured he'd just take him out there to the jungle to dump him somewhere in a ditch and be done with him because he won't die. And one of the reasons he wouldn't die is there was actually, there was wild figs that grew there. And when there was a little bit of cool at night, sometimes the figs would fall out of the tree. He would, there were no walls on the hospital. So he would crawl out of the hospital over to where the figs dropped. And first daylight, somebody's going to pick up all those figs. But he would just crawl out in the dark and feel around on the ground. He'd heard them fall. And something drew his attention to it. And so he went out there and he would pick up a couple of figs here and there every night that that some fell. And he would force them down. And they didn't stop the diarrhea, but it gave him a little bit of nutrition. And uh, 
you know, if there were worms in it, all the much better. He'd get protein too. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's part of the reason he survived. There may be more reasons, but we won't go into that. But what happened to him? Because I knew him. I knew him when he was 80 years old. <laughs> Been here to the house a number of times. Uh, anyway, Ben, the, uh, he was taken up way up in the jungle in, into a hut that was built up in the jungle. You couldn't even normally see it. Just kind of blended into all the jungle and everything. And you could look down through some of the trees if you could get over to one side of the hut. And you could look down and you could see parts of the camp. So he was way above the camp up in this little hut, which is just a couple of poles and kind of thrashed together with bark and then a little bit of, because it rained all the time. So there was a little bit of either bamboo or palm leaves, some sort of leaves that keep the rain off of you. But you were just in this little hut with, you know, four posts. Uh There were no walls. You were just in there. And he just laid there. And long about sunset, the Japanese officer appears. He didn't even really hear him coming. All of a sudden, he's there, standing right next to him. He, he hears his feet when he walks into the hut. And he looks at him, and, and the, the guy speaks his language. And I'm not sure if he was he could speak English at that time. He could speak English when I knew him. And he may have known, he was from Indonesia. He was Dutch Indonesian. But he looked, you know, looked a little native. So, you know, that, that's typical of Dutch Indonesians. Actually, I was just, I had my neighbors, uh, their mother was from Dutch Indonesia as well, because they, all the Christians were kicked out of Indonesia, and she went to, I think she went to France first, when she was a little girl. And then she came to America. And uh, she was still a green card holder when I knew her. But I know her kids. I've talked about her kids. <laughs> uh, I knew her husband. I talked about her husband on the show. Lots of stories. And and we're just we're actually talking about one of their sons who lives in Kentucky now. But anyway, this guy has no relation, but he is Dutch and Indonesian. So the Japanese guy was talking to him and he could understand him and they were communicating. And he wasn't talking in Japanese because my friend didn't know any Japanese. So whatever language he was able to... And he says, I have no medicine that I can give you except for he did have a little bit of something. It was a little powder that he could give him. But I have no medicine. I have to. I can't take it away from my own men who often need it because they were in short supply. But I can give you this much. And uh, if you get better, you get better. And he, he gave him some food too. I don't know what kind of food, but he gave him a little bit of food. And then he left. And he came up and water. And he gave him some sort of a container where he could get a little bit of water. And you could get water running off the roof when it rained. But you'd have to put it where you could collect it. But... Uh, then he left him up there. And he was up there alone all day. And he says that all day it wasn't so bad. All night, that was a different thing. He says, there's tigers in that woods. <laughs> there's all kinds of wild animals in that woods. And he would stay up all night. You know, and, and he knew that a tiger could come in and just take him away anytime. I mean, this guy was little. But he stayed up there until he got better. And then 
he was brought back down to the camp and put to work. <laughs> they put him on light duty at first, but uh, he tells a story about uh, how they were marching him to a new camp. They're always moving to a new camp. They build a, a section of the railroad, and then they have to move to a new camp, and then they start a new section of the railroad. And uh, and this was the Malaysian railroad that was to bring supplies so that Japan could conquer all of Malaysia and Vietnam and all that stuff. But uh, he was marching with all the other guys marching, and you know they're just marching in these like double rows, and they're going down these muddy trails. And he saw a book. Actually, it was two books. Two books in the mud, just in the mud. They they were still pretty good condition. They were getting muddy. They were getting stomped into the mud. And he reached down and he grabbed them and he picked them up. And he held them close to himself. And he says, anything you found other than mud and leaves or anything was of value in the camp. You didn't know what you could do with it. But uh, it was of value. Well, these were books... Concerning the Bible and Israel, they're ancient books. They're very old. This was, of course, back in the 40s during World War II. And uh, he said I, he read every inch of those books. And eventually they disappeared, you know, moving from camp to camp. Some, sooner or later, somebody grabbed them or whatever, and they disappeared. But not until he had read them, or at least in most, he had read them. And a lot of the ideas he had came out of those books, putting things together. He had a way of looking at the Bible, looking at Scripture. And uh, those books enlightened him about a lot of things. And he was he could see that we were all back in the bondage of Egypt again. Really rare to find somebody who could see that. He didn't really have all the answers. Nobody does. But a lot of the things that he shared with me helped me. And I met him in the early days when I began to go back and look at the Bible and law. And so anyway, that's just one of the people that God put in my path. And so I, some people like my story, so I shared it with them. So anyway, we told that story. We're going down this story of death of despair. And that was really kind of an appropriate story to tell you about this despair. This guy had every reason to despair. He eventually traveled all over Europe telling his story of survival through these camps. And that's where he learned English. He was that he didn't really know English, I guess, at that time. Now I remember he, he might have known a few words, but he couldn't speak English. He knew Indonesian, probably knew Dutch. And, and so when he was finally rescued from the camp, he was taken to Holland and then traveled around Europe. And eventually worked for the U.S. government and came to America, got citizenship in America, and then eventually met me. <laughs> he lives lives in a town not lived in a town not far from. Some of his grandkids are still around. But uh, anyway, uh, he had every reason to despair, but he didn't despair, and he survived where almost nobody survived the length of time that he was in those prison camps under the Japanese and survived is amazing. Most people didn't last six months. Many people didn't last one month. But he lasted from the early... Or we weren't even in the war. 
when his merchant marines from Indonesia were torpedoed by the Japanese. Pearl Harbor hadn't even been invaded yet. I mean, some of these things he didn't even know about for years. But he was a part of this work crew going across some of the most godforsaken jungles on the face of the earth with some of the most brutal captive people that you could imagine. And he survived it. And he survived it. And he survived it. And he went all over Europe talking about his experiences, witnessing, uh, learned more and more about the Bible. Because he was just a recent convert to Christianity when he set sail on that merchant ship. And like I said, they they barely got out of the harbor. They never got to another harbor and they were torpedoed. And he was, you know, he was in the water. Uh, and he said that the water was full of poisonous snakes, sea snakes. And he said then the Japanese came and fished us out. And he says, that was a day I will never forget. And he would never talk about what happened when they fished him out. But he says it was brutal. It was brutal. And if he's saying that's brutal, and he's seen the, 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 the railroad camps for years and years, he should have despaired. But he just kept at it. Kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And survived and survived and survived by the grace of God. Long enough so that he could relate many of these stories to me. <laughs> and now I can share them with you. But will you... And your survival is not important. Now, his sons have survived. His, uh, his grandsons, last I know, were still alive. And I assume they now, yeah, I know that uh, they have at least some great-grandsons or great-grandchildren. I can't remember everybody. But um, what what is the secret of that survival? I tell you, it's the utility of Christ. And it's you can think it's you, but it's not. It's the utility of Christ. And there was enough love in him, enough commitment in him, that he was protected to survive through these arduous and hard times. Hard times are coming again. Uh had a neighbor, uh, had a child that we babysit for from, you know, we knew them before he was born. Grew up, well, he committed suicide during COVID. He lost his job. He's getting a, a check from the government. He wasn't kicked out of his apartment. He was just home playing video games all day. He couldn't get another job because COVID. All the restaurants were shut down. All the stores were not hiring. Shut down, shut down. Suicide rate just went up. Death of despair. How do you protect yourself against that? How do you protect yourself against bipolar attacks? How do you protect yourself against marriages that break up after 10 years, 20 years? Or like somebody was just talking to me. What did they say? He was married for two months, two weeks, and six days. Something like that. I got the numbers wrong. But it was a very short period. He says, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and he never did. But... uh how do we get to a place like people used to get married and they were married all their life? It wasn't always easy, wasn't? But there was a commitment, there was a purpose. The purpose was to have children, which was a, a difficult thing, and struggled to work not to become rich, but to give life to somebody else. If you want to 
cure your bipolarism. You have to start living for somebody else. Start caring about somebody else. Start thinking of somebody else. And that's what the Israelites were doing in Exodus. When the plagues were coming, when the water turned red, they had to help each other get water. When there was no straw being delivered by Pharaoh, they all had to pitch in to get more straw, to make more bricks, to meet their tally of bricks. Everybody had to work together, and this is the key to a free society. It's not going off and doing your own thing. It's helping take care of one another, caring about one another, being there for one another. This will heal that disease that we call, you know, the disease of despair. This disease of, of bipolarism, of schizophrenia, of depression. This is how you cure it. So anyway, this, uh, these medical conditions, the disease of despair that include at least three classes of behavior related to medical conditions that increase in groups of people who experience despair due to a sense that their long-term social and economic prospects are bleak. Well, how bleak are they when you're in a prison camp Marching through the Burmese jungle, (laughs) surrounded by men who will kill you just because they're having a bad day. He says the three commonly listed disease types are the drugs, the over, drug overdose, suicide, and alcoholic liver disease. Well, their other, uh, forms is, is your eating habits. You could buy any food that just about you, you wanted. You could eat almost anything you want. And yet, look at what people are buying. Look at how people are taking care of their bodies. They they don't even think about it. Uh, Laziness, sedentary life, not exercising, not doing for others. You're going to be depressed. You're going to want to kill yourself. You're playing video games. You're you're self-indulging. You're not doing things for other people. This will etch its way into the very soul of your being, into your mind. It will set you up for destruction. And when hard times come, you won't, you'll think, I have no purpose to live. We see this in the, you know, the, the movies about the end, you know, all the malls are destroyed. You can't go shop anymore. There's no more bank accounts. And there's no more purpose to live. Because I can't go to the mall anymore. <laughs> no. no, you have to have, you have to have a purpose to live. And that's one of the things being a couple. The purpose to live is to bring up the next generation. You talk about nature. Cows do this. I t- you heard me tell stories. Sheep do this. Even goats do this. They have a purpose to live. I saw a video. I don't know why I watched it, but it, it came on after I was looking at something else and uh, doing research. And then all of a sudden it popped on and I, I watched a little bit. It kind of jumped through it. But it's all these situations, you know, like an elephant. It's, it's young falls into a hole and the elephant actually goes and gets people. This is an African elephant. Goes and gets people. To come and help get its baby out of the hole. 
other people, you know, a, a goat comes and gets uh, people to come and baz and follow me, follow me, and they take them to where their their baby goats have fallen down a hole and they can't get out and they can't get them out, but the person can reach down and grab them and pull them out. And uh, other animals get trapped with their head in a bucket or head in a jar or, or what have you, and they accept help. And they actually sometimes show an appreciation of the help. They know they were helped. I see, you know, dogs jumping in and saving ducklings. And take, that there's this desire to, to take care of other life that made it be even a different species. Well, this takes us back to what we just read in Exodus. One law. The law of life. You'll know the law of life if you eat of the tree of life. You won't know the law of life if you only eat of the tree of knowledge. Like Sam Harris. <laughs> you know, he was the one, you know, he says, oh, no, he doesn't believe in God and he believes in science and he's this most logical person and all this kind of stuff. And people, you know, he's the, the, the genius atheist. Well, during COVID, he said that people won't get the shot, they should be excluded from going to the hospital, they should be excluded from going to the grocery store, they should be excluded from our society because they won't go get the shot. And he even took it a step farther. Even if it proves that the shot was due no good and it could actually do harm, you should still bar them. Because the accepted science was that the shot was our salvation. Well, I don't know about him. Immediately, I knew there was something wrong. Way back before they even developed the shot. I knew there was something wrong. You can go back and listen to all our programs. Go read all our, all our articles. We we walked through this and showed you step by step. We could have told you a lot more if we weren't in danger of constantly being censored. But we told you enough of what was going on. How did I know all this stuff? I'm just a shepherd out in the desert. Because... Yeah, a little bird told me. You know that bird. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> I had to go look up the science and find out what the real science was and share it with you. Because you're not going to believe me if I just told you the Holy Spirit told me. <laughs> you don't want to go down that way, buddy. That's a bad road to go. Don't go down that way. But uh, I had to give you facts because everybody's still climbing around in the tree of knowledge. Well, let me give you another fact. If you don't come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands... You can't plug into the utility of Christ's love because he commanded that. He didn't suggest it. You know, I suggest you guys all get together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. No, he commanded that. What do you think? That everybody that left with Moses was just 100,000 men, 500,000 men, whatever it was. Say they got an extra zero on there. It wasn't 600,000. It was only 60,000 men. Well, still over 100,000 people if you count the kids and the wives and, and etc. No, it was a lot of people. They had to be organized. They had to be organized. When they, they come and they're going to get water, they had to be organized. So anyway, but the truth is, like I say, obesity, unhealthy diets, and eating habits, laziness, all these things are killing you. And society is just 
pushing them in your direction. I go into grocery stores now, and I think, like, there's hardly anything I could buy. <laughs> I can't eat that. I can't eat that. That's bad for me. I actually went off my diet. Somebody had some food that I don't usually eat. And, you know, it's something I ate years ago. I ate it. I suffered for it. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for my weaknesses. <laughs> You have awakened me to my weakness. It will be much easier to refuse that you refuse that food in the future. So society just 200 years ago required uh, social bonds within a community in order for you to have a community to to because there was no welfare except for charity. There was there was nobody to come to your aid. Your posse was this uh the Brought about by the hewing cry of the people. And, and you had to know who you could count on and who you couldn't count on. And you developed that and you developed those social bonds. I, I've told the story. I won't go into the whole story, but I go all the way up to North Dakota. I'd never been up to North Dakota before. I had relatives up there. We never ever visited them when I was growing up. And I, that, some of them came and visited us, but a lot of them I never met. And I just decided I'm going up there to meet them. And, uh, I went up there. Uh, drove up there, my Toyota Land Cruiser, and worked on farms for a whole summer. Got to meet all my cousins, which was where I got some of my stories, uh, from. But, and going up there, I met a storekeeper. I won't go into the whole details, but in the process, he was telling me, eventually, when he was explaining why he was being so generous, with me who he had never met before, didn't know, never saw me, I never saw him. But he was so willing to accept anything I say and then bend over backwards to help me out. And I thought like, what's the deal? Well, he told me. He saw, must have saw the question in my face. He said that when he was growing up as a little boy during the Depression, his father had told the story that the only guy who paid every dime of what he owed, even though it was very uh, difficult for him to pay it, was my granddad, who I never, ever met. He died, I think, before I was born. And he was a cantankerous old guy from a lot of the other stories. But he paid his debts. And the, this young guy said that as long as there was food in his store, there would be food for my grandmother who lived there in that little small town of about 200 people or so because of what my granddad had done. Now, this guy didn't know my granddad. He never knew him. But the bonds, the social bonds, moved from generation to generation, which is why if you read in Daniel, the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. The the Jordan Peterson and those guys were talking about you, why you don't invest in the treasures of the earth, but in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the reality is, is this investment in the kingdom of heaven includes the investment in the families round about you and those social bonds. But it goes one step farther in these social bonds. But investing in the kingdom of God, where nobody can come in and steal it, Nobody can take it away. We are cosmically connected, singularity connected, if I can make that a whole word, because that divine spark that connects us with God connects us with everybody else that's connected with God. 
I have heard story after story and I've seen similar stories myself or somebody and I've actually participated in such things where God told me to come and tell you this. And you go like, what? And, 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 but it's important. It's, it's, uh, it's, the guy knows something. Where did he find this out? How did he know to come? I mean, literally there's an army of people that are connected to God. And the more you're connected to God, the more they will be at your disposal. The, not for your will, but for God's will. And if God wants to spare you, of course you can't, you can't go to God because you want to save yourself. You can only go to God if you want to save others. That's, this is critical. If you're looking, well, I, I want to believe in Jesus because I want to be saved. No, you want to be, believe in Jesus so that you can save others. Isn't that what Christ did? He didn't die so that he could be saved. He died so that other people could be saved. That's the character that you want to cultivate. And that's what the character that all the Israelites are going to have to cultivate. They were going to have to be willing to lay down their life for their fellow man. Lay down their extra food stores for their fellow man. Share with their fellow man. Charitable to their fellow man. In order to do that, you have to forgive your fellow man. Then you can plug into the utility of God. The power of God. You're going to need that. Because the plagues are coming. (laughs) So... Get ready for the plagues. So, more on this death of despair. Society, like I said, just 200 years ago, required these social bonds. We actually need to redevelop them. I have a whole program on this that we did a month or so ago. It was uh, it's actually during the start of the Exodus. So, it's one of the afternoon shows going through the Exodus series. And it's the one that has to do with Malone. I've done earlier shows on this because I heard Malone say that we live in a sick society and we have to recreate the social bonds of a society. I say we have to recreate the social bonds of a free society. And this is what the rituals and ceremonies of Moses is trying to teach us. It's not about yeast in your house. It's about cruelty and judgment and selfishness. So investing in your local community with generosity and regularity would create the circumstances where you would far more likely to receive aid when there was a true need. You won't get it from everybody. Because so many people are so used to entitlements. If you help them out, they think, well, you should help me out because I had a need. You know, somebody came to a, a neighbor of ours he came to their Bible study. It's a Bible study up north of here. And never been to the Bible study before. He comes to the Bible study. The first thing he talks about is, I need firewood. And one of the guys immediately said, well, I may have some firewood I can bring over for you. Why are you bringing it over? Why didn't he come and get it? Oh, he doesn't have a pickup? I don't know if that's the case or not. Well, load it in your car. <laughs> You want it for free. Don't make your neighbor cut it, stack it, carry it over to you and give it to you for free. You can do something. You you can say, well, I don't want to take the firewood for free. What can I do to help you? I know that the individual who's 
saying he may have the firewood. He has to move. His house is uh, going to be bought by somebody else, so he has to go, and he's moving to another location. I'm sure he would need help moving. You know, the, there was a preacher once who, who told me this, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in it, is that he would have this stack of unsplit firewood outside the vestry or the whatever it is, the the place where the pastor stays. And uh, he would have it there, and when people come by and say, uh, yeah, do you have any food I could eat? Uh, do, do you have any extra food or any some money that you could give me? I'm, I'm poor and I, I need help and everything. Well, he would say, well, I I can fix you something, but while I'm fixing it, why don't you go over there to that wood pile and split some wood? He said that wood pile sat there for a long time. And when he would, either the guy walked away in a huff or he came back and the guy was gone. And uh, the reality is they they don't want to work. You're being cruel and ungodly. To the man that you just give to without him stepping up to his responsibilities. Now, if he comes up in a wheelchair, okay, maybe you don't have a job for him. I can find a job for him. <laughs> uh, my daughter-in-law could teach him how to knit. <laughs> he could knit. <laughs> I knew a guy who was a quadriplegic who ran a machine shop. He was a quadriplegic since the day before his 18th birthday. He could have sat on a government check the rest of his life. His parents were killed in the same accident that crippled him. Uh, his, do- his sister survived. Uh, but he, he was in his folks' house and they had a shop and he got hired other guys and he learned... He knew a little bit about running a machine shop, and so he taught the guys from his gurney. He often was in a gurney rather than a wheelchair because he was a quadriplegic. He could put his arms in rings and stuff like that and kind of get around a little bit. But there was no stopping that guy except his anger. His anger eventually was his downfall. But that's a story too long to tell. But... We need to build that back. And the way to do it is in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Helping other people will make you whole again. No greater love that a man has than he lay down his life for his fellow man. That's setting a precedent and a principle that you need to follow. That will save you from the death of despair. And... And when I see people, so many people today that are uh, depressed and despairing, that, uh, no, you don't want that. And, and you won't have to have that. And your, your relationships can become richer. But you have to give up judgment. You have to give up anger. You have to give up usurping God. You have to make your life of service to others. I had all kinds of things to plan for after the morning show, but I ended up doing all kinds of things for other people. I just sometimes, you know, as I was growing up, I should say growing up, I was from the time I moved out here back when I was 20, that's almost 50 years ago, uh, 
We just did things for one person after another. People would come here and say, can you help us do this? Can you help us do that? Sometimes they'd give us a bale of hay and payment. Sometimes they wouldn't give us anything. But if they didn't give us something, somebody else would see it and they would give us something. Because they they thought it was strange how people would just do things for other people. And not expect pay. They they couldn't figure that out. They they could they thought maybe there was something wrong with us. <laughs> and we were home teaching our kids, and we weren't borrowing money, and we weren't taking any government benefits. We must be crazy. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the kingdom of God, folks. That's how you build those social bonds. Now you have to do this to the tune of one hundred forty-four thousand people. Or 144,000 men in their families. That's learning the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And if you aren't willing to learn that song, you can't plug in to the utility of Christ. Power is going up everywhere in the world today. You want to plug into the utility of Christ, you have to see yourself as you really are. Uh, According to Ehrlich, he also said the single best predictor of national fertility rates happens to be wanted family size. In other words, reported by women. Women say, yeah, I want to have three kids. I want to have four kids. Only want to have one kid. This wanted family size. So they go through and they survey women. How many kids do you want to have? And that will tell you a little bit about what the birth rate might be. He says that subsidies are, are extremely expensive. The Amer- he says the American birth rate through subsidize, subsidies vastly underestimates the challenge. The challenge may ultimately prove to be civilizational in nature. In other words, these same bonds that Moses is trying to create will also create large families. Just slightly clinging to some of the principles that Moses is going to be laying down as we go through Exodus could raise the fertility rate and the uh, birth rate in a nation, just slightly. Uh, It will uh, dispel depression and despair. It will lower the divorce rate. Just in your culture, in your cultural civilization, you conform to some of the ideas that Moses is going to be talking about in Exodus 12 and in other uh, subsequent books in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 17 and 16. Just some of them will start leading you back towards freedom. Early Americans were doing some of the things that were in Deuteronomy 17 16, but your constitution allowed you to go in another direction. Now, the Constitution itself didn't create the problem. It's you who created the problem when you followed some of your leaders like FDR and and LBJ and Obama and some of the things they introduced. But even before them, Woodrow Wilson introduced stuff that was contrary to the teachings of Moses and nobody noticed. And if you're going contrary to what Moses was teaching, you're going contrary to Christ because they were in agreement. Uh, Just the idea that if you think... And this is one of the things I noticed with Dennis Prager, constantly going back to this, you know, where he's talking about the destruction of his enemy. That's a joyful thing. 
that makes makes them happy, and we will come to it uh, in Exodus where they're singing about the supposedly the destruction of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. But that's not what's making them happy, and that's not what should be making them happy. I don't believe that that's really what that's about. It's about the fact that they didn't have to become murderers to stop their enemy. God stopped their enemy. And he stopped it because of this pillar of fire. But that pillar of fire was there because there was a fire in the hearts of some of those Israelites. Just some of those Israelites. Others would learn it over the days to come, the years to come. But just some of them made the difference. So if you just just start slightly moving away from unjust weights and measures, forced taxation, a welfare, a table of welfare that is a snare, move slightly away from the dainties of rulers who exercise authority one over another, it will have an immediate effect. But with the plagues that are coming, and that if you don't do that, you will be subject to the plagues that are coming. But if you do do that, you could be protected from those plagues that are coming. And God will prepare a Basra to protect you. Now, a lot of the people that may be listening to this right now, they're not getting what I'm saying. And I'm not going to shed light on it again, just like the darkness. Moses was telling them stuff, but he wasn't explaining every little detail. I'm sure he explained a lot of things to a lot of people. Remember, he took the elders off. And maybe those were elders of elders of elders. Or they were already in a network. A network that was around for a long time. you got to remember this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands for the judicial system was something that Jethro brought up. But Jethro, remember, was a priest of Midian. So that information was around to use the courts in this tens, hundreds, and thousands. But the social welfare was already conducted in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, thousands of years before Moses. But people got away from that, and now they were going to have to go back to that. It's the way the early church was organized, and you're going to have to go back from that to that. But going back to that is not going to give you the food that you need. It's not going to give you the shelter that you'll need. But it may plug you in to the spirit, the love of Christ. Not your love of Christ, but the love that comes from Christ. The love by Christ. Plug you into that utility and that power. And that power may lead you to a place that, you know, a place you ought to be. You know, like the Clampets, you know. So we loaded up the truck and we moved to the place that we ought to be, which is the kingdom of God, which is what you're supposed to be seeking. You're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It isn't righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. It isn't righteous to ask men to force your neighbor to give to what you want. It isn't righteous to trade unjust weights and measures that you know are losing their value. But you're in a predicament where you have no choice. But if you turn around and start going the other way, and we'll be talking about that as we go through Exodus, well, God may have mercy on you.
uh, was there anything else in that article? Actually, there was other things. The death of ethics. We've actually been living that. Without ethics, there is death. And uh, I talk about outward bound and stuff. But we'll save that all for another time. I'm making a mental note so I can remember to do that. But I think I need to go out and do some other work. So I'll let you guys go. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.